And uh, I just want to say thank you to Father Sam for inviting me. You know, there's going to be one truth that will become abundantly clear before this night is through, that I am the least qualified to be up here. And if you get one thing out of this, you'll at least know that Hester's coffee rocks. <laughs> Beyond that, there's no guarantees and you do not refund money. <laughs> when, uh, when Father Sam called me and asked me to uh, be a part of it, I was quite excited. And he, he gave me the list and said, what, what section do you think you want to cover? I said, I want shame. You see, shame has a, a particular interest in my life because I spent over 20 years being addicted to pornography. By the time I was six, seven, and eight, I had inherited my father's pornography addiction. I had witnessed things he had done to my mother, treating her like she was an object to be consumed and to be trashed afterwards. And I grew up on that. My whole education about sexuality, about love, about relationships, about the value of women was based on what I consumed in pornography. By the time I was a teenager, I was trying to create notches on my belt, triumphs to, to conquer women as much as possible. And I won't get into that conversion story too much. You can hear it on my website. But it's particularly important for the man, women too, but for the man who struggles with addictions to pornography. You have to understand that shame, it's the lack of shame, it's the shamelessness, but it's his realization of shame because I always sought satisfaction, but always in every single occasion when I used and abused myself or another person, I only had shame. And it was my shame that kept me a slave because I thought I was the only one with this problem. Yes, we all talk in the locker rooms and, and men like to, to go off at the mouth, but that doesn't mean that they are honest with themselves. Their shame makes them feel that they are the only one in the room, only one in the world that has this problem. And when they hear someone talk about it boldly and honestly, they cry in front of you because this is freedom to realize what they have is a problem in their life. And they will, it's an opportunity to bring them out of this slavery. So shame has a particular interest in my life. It wasn't until April of 2002 when I got on my knees and let go and let God literally God allowed me to understand, after he hit me with a 12-pound sledgehammer, that I had to maintain my own sexual integrity. That I had to revere my wife as a person, not an object. And that turned the tide, and that's what I hope to uh, bring into tonight's talk. <clears throat> this is going to be good. On page 174 of a father who keeps, uh, that's the radio show I do all the time, father who keeps time, of love and responsibility, Pope John Paul II says this, quote, we can then say that the phenomenon of shame arises when something which of its very nature or in view of its purpose ought to be private passes the bound of a person's privacy and somehow becomes public. You see, shame is a natural tool. Although it feels very negative to, to feel shame, but shame exists to guide your conscience in the right direction if used properly. If used improperly, it convicts you. It accuses you of your fault. Now shame, we experience shame in not just in sexuality, but I mean, for instance, there are countless miracles, countless, you know, very uh, holy things that John Paul II or Blessed Teresa of Calcutta did, for instance, that they would never want you to know about. Out of their sense of humility, 
They would never in a million years want things to be made public that they have done out of, out of graciousness, out of charity, out of kindness. And they feel some shame as a result for those things becoming public. So shame does not always mean negative, and that's very important. But Pope uh, John Paul II focuses on the sexual shame. And he also brings out the point that there is a difference between animals and mankind. Now this reminds us of what? Genesis chapter 2. What happens? God, to show Adam that there was none like him in all of creation, tells, says, go and name all the creatures. Now, God didn't need Adam to name the creatures. This was for Adam's sake. And he realized at the end of this that he is alone, that no other creature is like him. And then God puts him to a sleep and takes from his side the rib and fashions the woman, not from his foot, that she might be his footstool, not from his head, that she might be on a pedestal, but from his side, that she might always be by his side, his equal. That is the intent that God shows. And John Paul II makes this distinction. He doesn't use those words, but he shows us that animals conceal, not out of shame, they conceal out of a fear, an instinct of fear. Mankind is different. You see, mankind has an inner life, a life within him that's uniquely suited for the natural tool of shame to work properly. But there is an almost universal tendency, he says, for humans to conceal sexual organs, those organs that distinguish between man and woman from the gaze of others. And we're going to get into why, because why is extremely important. But he makes the point here that nakedness does not always equal shamelessness. Think of tribal cultures. Think of the tropics. I mean, you, you have a beach here. People tend to not really dress modestly on beaches. The context is what's key. If you went to a, a third world country, let's say Africa, and you found some tribal peoples there, they are likely to not be dressed too heavily. Women in particular might expose certain body parts that they would never dream of exposing in this country. But why is it different there than here? Context is key. Modesty is that constant capacity to experience shame. You see, in that context, the man does not use the woman. He does not look upon her God-given beauty and reduce her down to a mere object, mere object of pleasure. And so the context is key. And so nakedness does not always equal shamelessness. I mean, we all go to, as he says, medical examinations where we have to strip down. We're not being used in abuse. The potential for abuse is not prevalent in those situations. So he goes on, and it's interesting because he doesn't give you a set of rules. He doesn't say, wear this, then that, and then this, and you're modest, and you're chaste. He doesn't do that. The reason why is because you have to take into account the social context of where you live, of what's going on in your life. And we're going to get more into that in greater detail. Why conceal? Why conceal? We conceal because I must not use that person as an object for use. I must not use myself as an object for use. I must not be allowed other people to use me as an object for use. And so we conceal, we experience shame. We conceal to protect our person, the value of our person. 
He says, quote, what is essential, what is an essential feature is the tendency to conceal sexual values themselves, particularly insofar as they constitute in the mind of a particular person a potential object of enjoyment for the person or the other sex. What is essential? Now see, shame does two things. It's got a two, it's got a two-fold feature here. On one hand, shame protects the value of your person. But on the other, it projects your values. It broadcasts them, if you will. Think of an analogy. Think of a castle. A castle with its big, strong stone walls. And on the inside of this castle is an army, inside, wanting to be protected, standing on the, the walls with all of their implements of war. On the outside of this castle is another army, wanting to get in, wanting to kill and pillage. The walls of that castle protect the people on the inside. The people on top of those walls project a message to the people on the outside. You come in here, you're getting your butt kicked. It projects and protects. Shame, as it pertains to modesty, does the same exact thing. You cover your body to protect yourself, the value of yourself. A man overts his eyes to protect the value of the woman, even in his own thoughts. At the same time, a woman projects her values, and so do men. They project their value as a person through their thoughts, through their words, through their dress, their attitudes, their relationships. All of these factors play a, a, a crucial role in what modesty is and what we're sending out as a message. Modesty, as I said before, as not me, but John Paul the Great, as John Paul the Great said, is the constant capacity to, and readiness to feel shame. Shame is a positive when used correctly, not a negative. He says, quote, shame is also and above all an imminent need to prevent such reactions to the body in oneself because they are incompatible with the value of the person. This is the origin of modesty, which is a constant eagerness to avoid what is shameless. You've heard the term, supra-utilitarian nature. We are above and beyond mere use. You see, he says, no one can take possession of the person unless the person permits this and makes a gift of itself from love. Who does that remind you of? Our Lord. Our Lord Jesus Christ. He loves us so much that he allowed himself. He was not taken. He gave himself up. He allowed himself. He allowed those, those men to chain him, to beat him, to mock him. The king of kings, the creator of all the universe, to be mocked, to be spat upon, to be whipped, have his flesh torn from his body and nailed to a tree that he might die for us his bride, his spouse. That's love. That's a total self-gift. He says, no one takes my life. I lay it down and I will take it up again. He said to St. Peter the Apostle in John chapter 18, when Peter draws his sword to tack off the ear of the high priest's servant, he says, put the sword away. Shall I not drink from the cup that my father has given me to drink? No, I will drink it. I will go to the cross. 
We have to give ourselves completely, holding nothing back. If we do not make a gift of ourselves, if we allow someone to just take advantage of us, even in their thoughts, they are stealing, they are degrading the value that we have inherent. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. God said, let us make man and woman after our image, after our likeness. Built into our very being is the divine image and likeness. We have a dignity that comes standard. You can't take it away from me. I can't take it away from you. It doesn't matter how young you are. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter how crippled you are. It doesn't matter how much suffering you're experiencing. You have dignity as a human person, and I cannot abuse you. To do so is thief, it's theft, it's thievery. It's a perversion of God himself. This is why abortion is wrong. This is why contraception is wrong. Euthanasia is wrong. We cannot lower the dignity of the human person no matter the circumstance. If it's suffering, you see the cross. If you do not make a gift of yourself and they take from you what is yours by God-given right, they are stealing from you your dignity. Your shame protects that. But it protects and it broadcasts. Remember the analogy of the castle? Well, let's think of another analogy. How about a casino? A casino in Vegas. What, is, what message does that send? Is it protecting? No, it's inviting. It says, hey, all is open here. Whatever goes on in Vegas stays in Vegas, right? Is that the image? Is that the message? Is that the value of your person? Are you a castle or are you a casino? We have to think very carefully. And this doesn't just pertain to women, although that's the normal uh, contextual subject. This pertains to men, too. What message are you sending men through your dress, your actions, your speech, your relationships, your attitudes? Are we sending the message that I am a son of the Most High, that I am a daughter of the Most High? I have dignity, and you can't take it from me. We broadcast the message, and it's very important. We feel shame because we recognize naturally that we are ignoring their or our own supra-utilitarian nature. The experience of shame is a natural reflection of the essential nature of the person. That's page 178. Again, we are broadcasting a message. We have to be very careful about the message that we're broadcasting. Those are the principles by which John Paul II uses to talk of modesty. He doesn't give you a guideline. He doesn't say, do these things. He says, these are the principles. You have to apply them in your life, given your certain circumstances. But I think most of us tend to forget about the broadcast part. Because the message is being sent, whether you like it or not. The question is, who's receiving it? And what are their intentions? So you can't control that part. There might be people receiving the message you're broadcasting who will use you. But on the other side of that coin, there might be someone receiving that message who will love you. Love you truly and perfectly. You see, John Paul II makes this, uh, makes this abundantly clear. Because ultimately, the shame used naturally leads not to lust, but used appropriately leads to love. He says, quote, 
A woman wants to be loved so that she can show love. A man wants to love so that he can be loved. In either case, sexual modesty is not a flight from love, but on the contrary, the opening of a way towards it. The spontaneous need to conceal mere sexual values bound up with a person is the natural way to the discovery of the value of the person as such. I love that part. It just helped me to realize, especially the, the first part, a woman wants to be loved so that she can show love. A man wants to love so that he can be loved. Notice how they're completely opposite of one another. Why? Because they're meant to go together perfectly. Because it is man and woman that are made in the image and likeness of God. Not just man and not just woman. It's the two together that make up the image and likeness of God. They are perfect. It's divine. It's, it's, it's designed. You can't miss this. That's what's so magical about this almost. God becomes present to me personally just by reading that one sentence. Because you can't get there by mistake. It's by intention. He goes on to say, in the woman, it expresses itself like this. You must not touch me, not even in your secret carnal thoughts. And in the man, like this. I must not touch her, even with a deeply hidden wish to enjoy her. For she cannot be an object of mere use. Our super utilitarian nature, the value we have as a person, is at the heart of the proper use of shame. And why we choose to conceal ourselves. Because he actually makes a point. You see, in men, sensuality is much stronger than in women. And as a result, women, by default, don't really see the big deal in covering up their bodies as much. Because to them, it's not that big of a deal. But to a guy, it's a near occasion of sin. And he goes on to say that a man could lust after a woman, or many women, even if that woman did nothing to provoke it. Nothing. Not in her dress, not in her attitudes, not in the, the way she conducts herself. She could have been perfectly fine, and yet still the man could be struggling. This is the potential for sin. This is why a man must guard his thoughts as much as a woman must guard her appearance, her body. A man protects not only himself, but also the woman by overting his eyes and removing himself from the situation of a near occasion of sin. That's how shame works appropriately in our lives. Now, I hope I have enough time here, but this is, here's where I really go off into some tangents. Um, Genesis 2.25. No, oh, I love this part. My five just talk about this all in if I could. In Genesis 2.25, we are told, now you need to remember, at least set the stage really quick. Genesis, you have to hear the narration of this. This is Moses in the wilderness with the people of Israel that he just led out of Egypt after 430 years of living amongst the pagans. He's in the wilderness, and he's narrating Genesis to them. And so in Genesis 2.25, Moses is recounting to the people of Israel, this is your past. This is who you are. Let me remind you, because you've spent far too much time with those pagans. Let me tell you who you are. 
So why? So that he can then turn around and say, now let me tell you where you're going and why and what you will do when you get there and why do you have to do it. But in 2.25, he says, and the woman and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. How is that possible? I mean, if you back up to like Genesis 2.23, you get the story of Adam being put to sleep. And what happens when he, he is awoken? God leads his daughter to Adam. Kind of like a marriage ceremony that you know, we might have had or seen in our times. The, the father leads the bride, his daughter, down the aisle, gives it to the new son. God takes Eve and brings it to Adam. And what does Adam say? Yeah, that's nice. <laughs> hey, you're a looker. No. He says, woman, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Wow. Was he a little excited? I mean, you can almost hear the excitement in his voice. I bet Eve was beautiful. I bet she was magnificent because she was the daughter of the Most High. And he had needed to spend all this time with the monkeys and the elephants and the, and the donkeys. And, you know, they stink a little bit. And they don't groom themselves very well. And here's this woman. Wow. And they're naked and not ashamed. Now, in Genesis 1.28... God gives them the divine commission to the first married couple. Go forth. Be fruitful. Multiply. Have the babies. Yeah, that's sex, if you didn't know that. Okay, so when we're told that they're naked and not ashamed, the context here, because Genesis 2.24 says, And the father shall leave, or the son shall leave his father and mother, and be joined, be cleaved to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. That's sex too, in case you didn't know that. And then it says, and they were naked and not ashamed. What do you think that they were doing? They were fulfilling the divine commission given to them by God, which is not dirty, not good, not great. It's divine to bring forth life on this world, to co-create, to participate in the creating work of God the Father is a divine commission to man and wife. And they were fulfilling it. And they were not ashamed. Why? Because their shame was absorbed by love. And they had no sin nature. There was no concupiscence to get in the way. Adam's will, his reason, ruled in his life. He would not look upon his wife's beautiful body and then reduce her down to a commodity to be consumed, to be lusted after, and then destroyed. No, he would look at her as the daughter of the Most High, full and complete, a true and fully per human person. Yes, she was gorgeous. And yes, they were going to you know, make love and it was going to be grand. But that is only one aspect of the person, not the whole. And Adam would not have reduced her. The very next sentence in scripture says, and Nahash was the most cunning of all the creatures. Nahash is the Hebrew word for serpent. Now stop thinking about the garden snake. Nahash means a venomous creature. It's used in Leviticus and the Psalms and other places to, to, to depict Leviathan, a great sea monster. It literally means a venomous uh, reptile. It, in Revelation chapter 12, we're told it's the dragon, the ancient serpent. Nahash is a formidable foe, and he enters in the middle of their lovemaking. 
He frustrates the divine commission. He comes in between man and his wife in the one flesh union. And Adam, who in Genesis chapter 2 was commanded to keep and protect the garden from all intruders, to protect even his wife, stands there and doesn't say a single word. He allows his wife to do all the talking. It happens in my marriage too, but other than that. <laughs> I let my wife take care of all the biker dudes that try to threaten us. But he stands there and he's completely silent in a garden by a tree. Eve does all the talking. Who received the order to keep and protect? Eve or Adam? Adam. Adam was a coward. Eve was the only one with integrity. And I could go on another hour on that. You'll have to listen to the radio show for more of that. Then let's fast forward. In Genesis 3-7 it says, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. Literally like five sentences apart from Genesis 2-25 to 3-7. And all of a sudden they're ashamed? What happened? Sin entered into mankind and into all of creation. Now Eve experiences the potential that her husband will use her. And she must protect herself. Adam experiences the potential to use his wife. And so Adam must protect her and himself. And so they sow fig leaves. Then they run and hide in a bush when God walks in the cool of the day. Real, a, a tangent, here we go. And, and fast forward, in another garden, Garden of Gethsemane, our Lord, in a garden by a tree, does he, is he quiet? Does he allow the new Eve to do all the talking? No, he shouts with loud cries and lamentations to the one who will save him. Notice the difference. Christ goes to the cross for his spouse. Adam lets his wife do all the talking to the bully and decides to be a coward. And when God walks in the cool of the garden, in the, uh, cool, the garden of the cool of the day, it is Eve who says, the snake beguiled me and I ate. It is Adam who says, well, you know, God, um, I think it was that woman that you gave to me. This is your fault. I'm in this because of you two. He's totally putting all the blame on God because of this woman you made. Yeah, she was gorgeous and all, but I wasn't going to eat. Completely, it's a completely night and day from Jesus Christ who cries out to God, not my will, but thy will be done. Three times. And at the end of that, what happens? He says, shall I not drink the cup my Father has given me? I will drink it. And he goes to the cross. It's super critical that we understand that Christ is our example in love and the proper use of shame. On the uh, bottom of page 181, he says, quote, The absorption of shame by love, shame is, as it were, swallowed up by love, dissolved in it, so that shame is, oh, I'm sorry, so that the man and the woman are no longer ashamed to be sharing the, their experience of sexual values. Shame naturally leads to love. Love, true love, absorbs shame. It's almost reverse process of what happens to Adam and Eve. If they can go from Genesis 3-7 back to 2-25, that's the process that you and I have to experience. You see, we're in Genesis 3-7. 
in order to experience Genesis 2.25, we have to truly and properly love our covenant partner. You see, covenant is not a contract. If you ever hear someone say a marriage is like a contract, step on their toe or something. You know, wake them up. A contract is the exchange of goods or services for the sake of economy. I sign a contract with my plumber. I don't sign a contract with my spouse. Marriage is a covenant. A covenant is the exchange of persons for the sake of family bonds. I give to you myself. I give to you myself completely with no reservation. I hold nothing back. And I take to you me completely with nothing held back and vice versa. That's a marriage. So we have to think that way because ultimately as we sit in Genesis 3:7 with our concupiscence, with our sin nature. Men, we can't even go to H-E-B and check out with being attacked, without being attacked by the, the magazines just trying to buy eggs. I have to avert my eyes. Because constant bombardment. I can't drive down the street without hitting a billboard with some half-naked person trying to sell me toothpaste. You know? So we live in Genesis 3-7. But to get to Genesis 2-25, we have to practice confidence. And now I'm getting ahead of myself. He says, quote, love, as we said right at the beginning of this book, is an attitude to another person which essentially precludes treatment of the person as an object for use. It most certainly does not allow a person to descend to that level, nor does it yet permit a person to reduce another to that status. This is why shame leads so naturally to love. Then he goes on to talk about how affirmation is so critical. And this is, I think, especially important for men. You know, for men, especially in my life, it is difficult to remind myself to affirm my spouse that she is a daughter of the Most High and her value as a person is so near and dear, not just to myself, but to God too. We must affirm the person as a whole, complete, and entire person, not just use them. And it could be in the body. You know, it's possible to use my wife as much as anybody else. But how about using my wife to, you know, do the laundry? It's good to have a, a slave around, you know, and do all the work. I have to do nothing. Change all the diapers. I have to do nothing. No, she's not made for that. She is a person, a daughter of the Most High. I must affirm her. He goes on to say that we, this affirmation is absolutely critical in understanding what true love is. Because true love always seeks the greatest good for the other person. It always seeks the greatest good for the other person. It's hard to remember when you live in a Genesis 3-7 world. We have to constantly remind ourselves that I must seek the greatest good, not only just for my spouse, but for the woman that's walking down the street wearing them tight pants. I must seek the greatest good for her. I must seek the greatest good for the man who's struggling with pornography. I must seek the greatest good for the person suffering, for the person living in the mansion, for all human persons. We must seek their greatest good if we wish to protect our own value, the value of others, and at the same time make straight the path to love. We must practice true shame. And I say practice because it's natural. But we must practice it because we have to come to set our reason above our appetites. Now... There are two passages that I think are very critical 
in Scripture. What, the first one is 1 Corinthians 13. How many people have read, heard 1 Corinthians 13? Right. The litany of what love is. How many people have heard that read at a wedding? It was never intended for that. It was read at my wedding. But that's not why St. Paul wrote it. When St. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 13, what love is, he was referring to works. If you love somebody, you will pour yourself out for them. Love is giving, not receiving. Love is a libation. It's not a gift back to yourself. It's a gift to someone else. The one I want to focus more on is Ephesians 5.25. Now in Ephesians 5.24, this is the one that gets everybody cringing. Wives, be subordinate to your husbands. <gasps> you chauvinists. We block our ears and we don't read the very next sentence or listen to the very next sentence, which is husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Now let me tell you something. How did Christ love the church? As I said before, he was beaten, he was mocked, his skin was torn from his body, and he went and was nailed to a tree that he might drown in his own fluids for hours for his spouse. Now, women, ladies, if you had a husband, you had a man who loved you that much, tell me you wouldn't subordinate yourself to them. Why? Because they would love you unconditionally. Because they would love you fully and completely. Because you are a daughter of the Most High. In that scenario, submitting yourself to another becomes easy. Because the husband submits to the wife and the wife submits to the husband. It's a mutual deal. But we must look at the cross to find love. That's 1 Corinthians 13. That's what love is. It is about giving, not about receiving. He says, quote, there is no longer any reason to be ashamed of the body once the positive urge to inspire love, which is part of this, that shame, has been met with an adequate response. Nor is there any reason to be ashamed of one's feelings, since there can be no question of regarding the other person as an object for use. Shame is absorbed by true love. When we move from Genesis 3-7 down to Genesis 2-25, we have to realize our reason is above and beyond our appetites. I have an appetite for food. You probably don't notice that. <laughs> It's true. I'm not lying to you. But I have to realize that I use and abuse food for what it was not intended. Food does not exist to entertain me. Food does not exist to comfort me, to make me feel better about myself. Food exists to nourish my body, which is the temple of the Holy Spirit. I have abused that. Now I must fast from that in order to get back to understanding what food is for. The same process applies to the person. We use and abuse the person for what they're not intended to be used for. We break them. We break them emotionally. We break them physically. We break them spiritually. And so we must keep in mind that super utilitarian nature of the spouse. And when we do that, shame truly is absorbed by love. And when that happens, guess what I get to say when I see my wife? Whoa, woman! Because I will not use her. Because I will not reduce her. She is a person. And because the shame is absorbed by love, I can enjoy her appropriately and naturally. 
Because sex is good. It is not bad. It is not dirty. It is divine. It's what brings life into the world. Really quick, I'm going to have to skip over a lot of material here, but there's one thing, there's one excuse that he addresses that I absolutely wish I could spend a little more time on because it's the excuse I use for decades. We're all, we, we're made this way. We're sexual beings. I mean, I love her. Well, yeah, I'm not married to her, and that's cool, but, you know, we love each other. Isn't that right? I mean, it's all good, right? We're sexual beings. This is what God made us for, right? No. You see, emotions will deceive you. Emotions will deceive you. How many people deny the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist because their eyes see bread and their tongues taste wine? Their senses are deceived because that's not bread. That's the body of Christ. That's not wine. That's the blood of Christ. Why? Because Jesus said so and that's good enough for me. My senses are deceived. How many women feel like they're all alone with no choice in the world, and they take, they take their baby to an abortion clinic. I was one of the cowards who took a woman there. She felt all alone, because I let her. She wasn't alone. I was just too cowardly to be the man God created me to be. Our senses will deceive us. John Paul II says, for love as an emotional experience, even if it is reciprocated, is very far from being the same as love completed by commitment of the will. You must have unqualified affirmation, lasting union in matrimony, clearly defined attitude to parenthood. Transient, exotic experiences must not be confused with love. Love seeks the greatest good for the other person. If I love you, I will not use you. And I will not even allow yourself to be used by me or anyone else. We cannot use our excuses of emotional, how I feel, I feel like I'm in love. I feel like this feels so good and I don't want to stop. The answer is continence. Now that I've cut all my time, Sean. The answer is continence, it's self-control. And to sort of wrap this up, I'll just tell you how it worked for me. Again, it's about putting your reason above your appetites. For me, when I was on my knees in April of 2002 and God allowed me mystically somehow to understand in an instant of time that I must practice sexual integrity, that I can't masturbate, that I can't use pornography, that I can't use my wife. You see, my wife was divorcing me and I lost my job and everything I had was going away. And God said, you made your bed, now you're going to lie in it. You're going to go to your wife and you're going to beg her to stay. And don't ask her to do anything because you're going to do all the work. You pick up your cross. You love your spouse like Christ loved the church. And when you do, she will submit herself. And so, after that experience, God gave me a job. It was working in an office full of women. It ain't good. Because I was like a chick, you know, little you know, puppy. I didn't know anything about you know, God. I was just learning everything. And I certainly didn't know any theology. I'd never even heard of it by that point. But I knew I had to preserve my sexual integrity. And I knew I had to preserve the integrity of the person sitting next to me in that office. And let me tell you, I would break out into cold sweats with lustful temptation. I would literally get myself up and walk out of the room. I'd go into the bathroom and I'd pray. 
I had asked our blessed lady, and I would pray the Hail Mary. And those temptations dissipated. I would avert my eyes. I'd drive down the road, and if I saw a good-looking lady, I would look the other way and avoid traffic, hopefully. <laughs> if I was in the checkout stand, I would avert my eyes or turn the magazines around. I still got to do that now because they're always at the height of my children. I mean, they want my children to go to hell. You know, it's, it's horrible. But we must... I know this sounds like it's geared towards men because I spent so much time talking about modesty in the context of women. I'll talk about men. Men, avert your eyes. Practice self-control. Pray. I wrote an article called Muscle Memory, Combat Rules for the Combat Christian. And it's all about continence and about how to exercise that. And you can find it either on Catholic Exchange or on my website, catholichack.com. But John Paul goes on to say that continence, self-control, just simply uh, you know, going through the effort to avoid the temptation or at the moment that you're tempted to do something about it is not good enough. It's not enough. Well, what else does it take? He says, because that temptation, and especially in a man, is so powerful, it, it just permeates their whole entire consciousness that you must graft onto it that supra-utilitarian nature of the person that you are using. You must remind yourself in that instant, at that very instant, that she is a woman made in the image and likeness of God. She does not exist to please me. And you do that when you're praying the Hail Mary and when you're removing yourself from that situation. I guarantee you it gets better and easier. I would pray hundreds of Hail Marys every day. And over time, it became easier and stronger. And I was able to, to interact almost like a natural person or a normal person. I'll never be normal. But I'm at least closer than I ever was because 20 years of debauchery really messes up your brain. And it doesn't go away simply because God has plucked you out uh, of that situation. Because sin has an effect and it lasts. Continence, self-control, that's the answer. But you must do so knowing that you must also know why you're doing it. And why are you doing it? Because we are made in the image and likeness of God. And our value as persons demands that we be respected as persons. Respect ourselves and respect others. And make sure that they respect us. He says, for the value of the person must not merely be understood by the cold light of reason, but felt. I must, not, I must not just understand that she's a person, I must experience her wholly and entirely as a human person made in the image of God, a daughter of the Most High. And just to wrap up now, just to end, we're under attack, men and women. Women want to be loved so that they can show love. A man wants to love so that he can be loved. When used properly, it leads to true love, perfect unity. Now, if you are a, a religious, you're a celibate, you're a priest, you're no different. Your spouse is Christ. And you pour yourself out entirely to him. And he reciprocates back to you. That is true love beyond anything I'll ever understand on this planet. 
It applies to all of us, no matter our situation, whether married or single or religious or, or whatever. It applies to all of us. We must practice true love and allow shame to work naturally in our lives to get us there. Because shamelessness leads to lust. Shame leads to love. Thank you. Okay, now you do realize I'm not qualified to answer questions, so <laughs> if you want to talk about podcasting, I'm good with it, but, uh, or fullness of truth, but no baseball, only the Red Sox are really a team. So. <laughs> what can you do if your partner is addicted to porn? That's a great question. I won't ask who said it, but it does matter if you're a woman or a man, but wait a minute. I just want to make sure it didn't say if your husband's addicted to porn. That would have been a key indicator. <clears throat> it says, what can you do if your partner is addicted to porn? Let's assume for the sake of the discussion that it is a woman asking this question, and it is her partner, her husband, or boyfriend, or whatever, is addicted to porn. Well, the first and foremost thing is you can do is you can pray for him. And you could, you could offer him up to Our Lady. Because Our Lady is queen of heaven and earth. And as beautiful as you women are in the room, I'm sorry, ladies, and as beautiful as my wife is, Our Lady is the most beautiful daughter of the Most High there is. She's the most pure. And so when we use her to fight pornography, who is going to go against Our Lady? <laughs> Satan? <laughs> you bring it. She's a castle. Exactly. So that's the first step, is pray and, and consecrate him to Our Lady. That will have so many uh, lasting effects that he'll never even know about. Because offering up sacrifices is not about letting everybody know. We don't tell people, yeah, it's, uh, it's Friday and Lent and uh, I'm fasting. Oh yeah. oh, yeah. I only had one meal. That's right. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? We don't go around, hey, honey, yeah, I pray for you today. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah, you owe me, but hey, who's counting? Oh, just ten times today. But other than that, we have to be like Christ. Offer up those sacrifices. And let me, let me just encourage you. Be bold. Be bold in your sacrifices for your spouse who's addicted to porn. How about you sleep on the floor one night a week for a month? How about you wear a rock in your shoe for a whole month? How about one rock in each shoe? If you wear high heels, eh, how about whip yourself? No, I'm kidding. Um, you know, be bold in your sacrifices. Don't kill yourself. Don't tell anybody about it. But be bold. Go, go beyond your comfort level when sacrificing for a spouse who desperately needs you. Because let me tell you something. God loves you so much that he's going to let you go to hell. Oh, yeah, God doesn't send anybody to hell. We send ourselves. It is our choice to love God or not to love God. He does not interfere with our free will. We send ourselves to hell. So if your spouse is addicted to porn, that is potentially where they might end up. How much do you love them? How much do you want to see them in heaven? Because in Matthew chapter 5, verse 45, the same chapter where our Lord said, you have heard that when you commit adultery, that that's pretty much a sin. But I tell you that if you even look at her and lust after her in your heart, you are guilty of adultery. 
The same chapter. A few verses later in verse 48, he says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Offer it up to Our Lady. Pray boldly for his conversion. And then give him the necessary resources that can help open his eyes. And let me tell you something, what works with men. You see, if I had a, a, some men in here that are addicted to porn, even just maybe a little bit, casually, and every once in a while, you know, they're online, or whatever, or they, they, they stare too long at the Sports Illustrated, H-E-B. They're making a bad choice. As I said before, their shame that they realize, they never realize satisfaction. That's the goal. But every time, they only find shame. And it's a vortex that sucks them downward. And it gets more and more perverse, more and more base images, more horrific, more graphic. And so we must help them. And so what helps them is to let somebody, and I, I'm not saying this to pat myself on the shoulder, is someone like me to talk about my past. Because they'll sit there and they'll go, yeah, like, yeah it's cool, man, whatever. And then they'll go outside and they'll cry. Because they heard one man talk openly and honestly and boldly about his addiction and how God saved him from it. And they go, I thought I was the only one. I thought I was it. I, I mean, and they just start bawling in front of you. It's freedom. They realize there's hope. Pray, offer to Our Lady, get them some resources. And I have some resources over here. If you have this issue, take my business card, email me. I'd love to help you. It is one of the most great privileges that I've ever had in my entire life because I get to talk to men literally all over the world about their addictions to pornography. And I love to do it because ultimately it leads us to heaven. It helps a man find freedom. And he comes home to the church, he receives the sacraments, and he is now, once again, a son of the Most High. And notice in Genesis, at the end of Genesis chapter 3, what happens? After God hears their confession, after he doles out the penances, what does he do? He makes them clothes made of animal skins. Why? Because he's restoring their dignity. Because they are naked and ashamed. God forgives you in the confessional. A man who's addicted to porn must know beyond the shadow of a doubt that he is not lost. He is not beyond help. He is not beyond the pale of salvation. God is ready and waiting for him, begging him. He is the prodigal son's father standing in the porch waiting for a son and will run to him as soon as he sees him. Hold him. Embrace him. Forgive him. And restore his dignity. Bring out the robe. Put on the ring. Put on the sandals. Kill the fattened calf. He was lost and now he's been found. That's the answer to helping your husband or your, your significant other or boyfriend. I don't know the relationship. Helping him find freedom from pornography. He must know that there is hope. He won't admit it to you because he's got this issue. But you pray for him. You sacrifice for him. You give him some great materials. And mine aren't the only ones. There's far better. And you allow him to absorb them almost on his own way. And your prayers and sacrifice will pay off. Oh, I thought it was the only question. I was going on for an hour. This is the second talk. It's okay. It's okay. Yeah, take your time. Look at that. It's like a dissertation. All these college people are here. My motto is to be the donkey Jesus rides. Because in Numbers, 
you know, the jackass under Balaam was made to speak by God for his purposes. And I once heard it said that if Samson could use the jawbone of a jackass to kill 10,000, imagine what he can do with a full jackass like me. <laughs> How do you enjoy sex with your spouse? Boy, that's personal. I'll make sure the recorder off. I don't want to hear that. Uh, how do you enjoy sex with your spouse without lust getting in the way? And how do you discern when that happens? Boy, that's a, that's a really great question. Because a man who, like myself, has come out of pornography addiction, and by the way, I never say that I am addicted. I'm not like, it's not Alcoholics Anonymous. Hi, I'm Joe. I'm a porn addict. Hi, Joe. You know, no, no. I'm not addicted to porn. Because I do not identify with my sin nature. I do not identify with my sin. I identify with my identity. Who am I? A son of the Most High. I am not addicted to porn. I'm a man who struggles. And guess what the remedy is? The sacraments. So that's the first step. But, and that actually applies to how do I have sex with my wife? How do I enjoy the one flesh union appropriately? It wasn't easy in the beginning. Again, cold sweats. Ah! You know, lots of praying. Lots of asking Our Lady to intercede. And actually, and quite frankly, it severely affected our relationships for a long time. Because I went to such an extreme to combat sexual temptations. It's like a, I, it was like a light switch. I turned it off. My wife felt unloved for a long time. It was hard. But you get there. When you put porn in your brain for decades... And that's all you ever knew. Again, just because God says, I absolve you in the confessional, doesn't mean he sucks out all those images out of your brain. I was sitting in a pew, and the priest would say something in a homily that would lead to another thought that would lead to another thought that would remind me of some porn I saw 20 years ago. That's the life of a man addicted to porn. That's the life of a man who's recovering from it. So... I put so much effort into combating that that I almost turned off my affection towards my wife. As I develop and as I submit myself to the will of God and ask for his intervention in my life daily, the more he lets me grow. And now it's easier because why? Shame is absorbed by love because the potential for the use of my wife as an object dissipates the more that I realize that she is a daughter of the Most High. And she is woman. Wow. That's the answer. It takes time and it ain't easy. This requires the wife to participate in her husband's battle. She will suffer. But as Colossians 1.24 says, St. Paul says, I fill up that which is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. What could be lacking in the afflictions of Christ? Throw that at a Baptist sometime. That'll mess up their mind. Nothing is the answer. Nothing could be a lacking in the afflictions of Christ. Then why did St. Paul say that? Because he says, For the sake of his body, the church, I suffer. I join my suffering to Christ on the cross. For the sake of his body. Your spouse is a part of that body. So you suffer for them. Wives, you suffer for your husbands. You help them get through this process. You help them with providing materials, like I said. Theology of the body is part of that process. 
the first step for every man coming out of addiction is to realize that he must maintain sexual integrity for himself and for his spouse and for all other people. That's step one, fighting it, continence. It's actually self-control. Step two is reworking the gears in the brain to overcome all the decades of badness. Theology of the body is what did that for me. It was a talk from Christopher West on marriage and the Eucharist that he gave. It was free online. I mean, I read that, I heard that, and I go, how come I never heard that before? I mean, I went through RCIA. I nobody told me that before. It made so much sense. It turned the switch back onto my brain. I could enjoy my wife because I can realize that she is a person, a daughter of the Most High. How does shame affect a, is that a child's self-destruction, especially when they do, I'm not sure what, do things that affect the child? Do evil things, I think is what that says. Now this is, boy, I can talk another whole minute talk on that. Again, I, I inherited my addictions from my father. I remember do, seeing my father do things at just six years old that I didn't understand. And it didn't make any sense to me. And then my parents got divorced and, and my father was with all these women. And what is that? What, what, what? I, where's my mommy? I don't get it. And then I saw my mommy do things because of these other men. It's confusing. It's confusing. It absolutely destroys the child. The, the pain and the devastation of my life was for decades. I mean, the emotional trauma. I mean, it was no wonder that I was using and abusing myself and every woman in sight. I mean, Lord help you if you were near me at that time. So the, the reality of destruction is quite real in the life of that child. What can you do? Well, again, the same processes apply. You pray, you fast, you sacrifice, you consecrate them to our blessed lady, and then you help them by talking to them through their, their issues. You provide to them a holy example of what love truly is to offset the lustful example. Now, I made a pact when God saved me when he pulled me out of that muddy pit of pornography addiction, I made a pact. I inherited my porn from my father, but not in my house. This far and no further. If your husband is addicted to porn, you love him. You love him enough to tell him to throw it away. You tell him it's destroying you, it's destroying your children, it's destroying him. You love him so much that you share the truth with him. And you endure the turbulent waters that will follow with a charitable and giving heart because love always seeks the greater good of the other. Got to cut it off. Sorry. It was, it was a couple of other questions. If you have other questions, I'm sorry if I didn't answer them and especially if I didn't answer them well. Um, you can certainly come see me. Um, real quick, do you mind if I just plug this? Whoa! I have, um, I didn't bring a lot of stuff, but first of all, I, as I said, as Father Sam said, I am the Director of Fullness of Truth, and we do have a, a Catholic conference coming up July 17th and 18th here in Corpus Christi at the uh, American Bank Center. We have a very obscure kind of guy, his name is Scott Hahn, and, and uh, you know, you probably haven't heard of him, but uh, there are two people responsible for my conversion, the Holy Spirit and Scott Hahn. And uh, so... You know, the first time I met him, I cried like a baby. He was like, what is your problem, dude? <laughs> next, next. You know how many people slobber over him? You know, literally. The guy's a rock star, you know? But he's, let me tell you something about this man. 
I work with like people like I'm a Catholic groupie, okay? I like I like, I like Tim Staples and Pat Madrid. And I'm like, oh, it's Pat Madrid. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah. I, Tim, Tim Staples is even worse, you know. And so with Scott Hahn, that's why I cried the whole time, you know. But um, this is the most humble man. He is the most giving, humble guy. I mean, it's, it's either he doesn't know that he is loved by countless hundreds of thousands of Catholics around the world, and Protestants, mind you, or he is just a humble, charitable, giving guy. And that's what it is. You can talk to this guy. He's going to talk to you like he's known you 10 years, like he's, almost, he's, like he's that close to inviting you over for dinner at, at the house with Kimberly. And trust me, I've hung on that word, waiting for it. <laughs> No, I'm available. No, really. Anytime, you name it, I'm there. Steubenville, I can walk. It's cool. <laughs> um, so July 17th and 18th, it's going to be a rocking con a conference. The Book of Revelation. I mean, how awesome is that? You know what I mean? Invite all your Baptist friends. They're going to love it. Um, there's a couple of resources I have over here. Um, one is, I have these MP3 CDs. They got seven hours of audio material. I produce a, a radio show called Behold the Man. I co-host a radio show called Finding Your Keys. And I produce some podcasts uh, and other materials. And I put some of those materials as they relate to pornography addiction on this CD. My conversion is on here. Um, and so if you know of a man who, who needs to hear this, take this. I got a couple over there that I brought with me. You're welcome to it. Um, I also partner with a ministry called the Kingsmen. They're a group of uh, men out of northern Philly. And they are, they are, they are, man, these guys. You know, we, all, we always see, you know, how the faithful go out and they pray in front of the abortion mill. And, you know, that is near and dear to my heart for obvious reasons as I shared. These guys will go out and pray in front of adult sexual businesses. These guys will go protest uh, the 7-Eleven because men are finding Playboy magazines in there. How many men do you know do that? Well, that takes courage. These men have that. And they wrote, they wrote a book about what their ministry, about how to start a men's group in your area. I started one of these King's Men groups in, in Houston and to help men overcome uh, pornography addiction and other addictions. And so this resource is over there, too. I got a couple of copies of that. So take the flyer. Um, also, I have... I help with the, another website that helps men and women with pornography addiction. It's called whodoesithurt.com. It also goes under the name of thepornefect.com. The, the gentleman who started this, his name is Matt Frab. He's an, he's an Aussie whose wife is from Houston, Texas, and now they live in Ireland. I don't get that either, but whatever. <laughs> and uh, he started this website, and he makes it, like you'll see in his marketing materials, everything looks like it could be a porn site. I mean, it looks, the, whole, the, the feel is just like a, a porn site. There's no explicit images, of course, and it's all Catholic because it's supposed to relate to the man who's engulfed in this world. He's living in Genesis 3-7, and we got to get him to Genesis 2-25. And so this is a great resource. There's articles. I've got some of my audio materials on that site. He just put up a, uh, another article of mine there. There's lots of other articles. There's a lady who was a former uh, porn actress who's written articles. She's had a conversion, and she's sharing what really goes on in the heart of a woman stuck in that situation. And it's shocking, because a man who's addicted to porn has never considered that side of the equation. But that woman suffers, and it's enlightening to read about that. So lots of great material on that site. 
the who does it hurt.com, the porn effect, all that is right over there. Help yourself to it. I have a stack of business cards that have my website plus my bonus of truth information, and you're certainly welcome to that. And so thank you so much for your time tonight, and God bless you.